Love that hymn. If you would, take your Bible and turn this morning to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, we have been uh, spending the past several weeks... uh, giving our attention to 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, Some may argue that they've been held captive uh, by this verse against their will. That's okay. Uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, John, the the, the aging apostle of God, uh, loving the church, having explained that heritage of the church and the difficulties that will come against the church concludes his letter with this encouragement little children dear ones beloved keep yourself from idols it's an important statement but one i think that we gloss over far too often last week we considered those words to keep ourselves from idols in light of John chapter 4, and you'll remember that that's the narrative where Jesus meets with the woman at the well, and in having her sin confronted, she wants to pivot and not deal with, with her uh, multiple marriages and living with a man that she's not married to. Instead, she, she changes the conversation and she says to Jesus, Um, Where are we to worship? And in response to that, we found that Jesus, in the only time that He describes the nature of God, says that God is spirit. And He goes on to say that those who worship must do so in spirit and in truth. And we concluded by learning that true worship must be marked by sincerity and understanding, that we must know the Word and respond in faith that God gives if we are to genuinely worship the living God. To worship is to do so by sincerity and with understanding. Something that the psalmist Asaph would have come to understand as he wrote the psalm that we will use in light of 1 John chapter 5, Verse 21, if you're asking yourself this morning, what exactly is our text? The answer is all of it. Uh, but particularly, we start with 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, and then go on to what I hope you will stand to your feet to honor this morning. In the reading of God's holy word. Asaph here, carried along by the inspiration of the one that gives us life, at this very moment, Starting in verse 1. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to Me 
my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. Do I eat of the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then. You who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. These are the words of the living God to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into this place this morning acknowledging the reality that the truth contained in this psalm we far too often neglect. Might you stir in us a spirit that is in accordance with your word, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth, and might you write these eternal truths on all of our hearts for your glory alone, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 50 has a little bit of weight to it, doesn't it? Immediately begins teaching us about the God who is spirit, who must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, in sincerity and with understanding. The God that we worship is a God, first, that we see in this psalm of judgment and of wrath. Uh, Verses 1 through 6 are really a summoning of all of God's people before the judgment throne of God that He might deal with them in their idolatry. The words are not light. Uh, They paint a picture of a God who is full of glory. Perfection of beauty. And he goes on to say that God shines forth from Zion. God is calling, again, His people to account in light of all of His perfections. In light of all that He is, He is going to deal with those that belong to Him. 
You see, I think that there's something in our way of thinking as moderns that says, well, you can have your God and I'll have my God and we can all just get along and it's going to be okay. But the problem is that God is not going to judge us according to our wrong ideologies of who He is. He's going to judge us according to the perfections that we find in Him. We are going to be called to account in light of all that He has declared in the fullness of His Word. A psalm here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God says that idolatry is something that if you really and truly belong to God, that God is going to deal with in your life. If He has really birthed you into His kingdom, then He is going to chasten you into the right understanding of His perfections, and He is going to bring you to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He is going to deal with you according to who He actually is, and according to His Word. And the psalmist says, now meditate on that. God is going to deal with you. You have turned from who He actually is, but He is a righteous judge, and He will bring you back to Himself. Look at the way that the psalmist begins by declaring who God is in verse 1. The Mighty One. God. The Lord. The psalmist begins by implication of those, those words to press upon the mind of the first hearers and upon our minds today that this God who will judge the earth is not like the vain idols that fill the earth. Because the vain idols that we amass for ourselves, whether they're intellectual, political, material, religious, those idols are powerless to save. And they are powerless to judge. But our God is in the heavens. He is the Mighty One. He is God, the Lord of all things. And He will do what He has said, and He will chasten His idolatrous people. He will confront us in our idolatry. If you come to the Word of God, or you come to Sunday morning, and there's a study on the attributes of God, and there is something about what is taught or what you find in the text that teaches you something different about God, then the right response is in humility to bow and to be changed by what it is that you learn. We dare not make idols uh, before the living God because He will deal with them. It is the loving thing to do. If God is holy and He is, If God is going to judge all of the earth, not only His people, and He is, then the loving thing for Him to do when He saves an individual who is neck deep in idolatry, and we all once were, then the loving thing for Him to do is to purge that idolatry from our hearts. And friends, that's what He's up to not only on Sunday morning, but in all of our lives. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. For the Lord disciplines the one that He loves, and He chastens every son that He has received. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating, treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not 
discipline. Again, God will deal with our political, our relational, our national, our intellectual idols. He will remove them from our grasp. And that alone is enough to give us cause to worship Him. And so what is the real issue here, I believe, in, chapter, in, in Psalm 50, is one of idolatry, of falling back into a wrong way of thinking about God and coming to Him in worship. James Montgomery Boyce paint, paints two real broad strokes of this psalm. He says really what has happened to the nation of Israel is they've fallen into formalism in verses 7-15 through 15, and to hypocrisy in verses 16 through 21. Derek Kinder says that these are nominally orthodox people. Orthodox meaning right worship and nominally meaning they're not even close to being there. They're individuals who say that they love God, but they are half-hearted about the worship that they offer to God. They are merely going through the motions externally, but they do not love God. Now it is at this point, in formalism and hypocrisy, where the modernist digs in their heels and they say anything that has a formula or a structure that God is against it. And they'll even come to passages like this and say, see, if there's a formula, if there's a structure, if there's a liturgy, then ultimately you will fall into dead orthodoxy. It'll become boring. And what in contrast often in our modern circles will be touted as the solution is you need to be informal and you need to be spontaneous. The modern view of right worship, the, the, the antidote to dead formal hypocrisy is be spontaneous and be informal. Beloved, can I tell you this morning? I don't believe that spontaneity and informality have ever fixed the worship problems that the people of God have faced. Not one time. Now, that's not to say that we don't at times have moments of spontaneous worship, delighting in God for what He has done. Generally, when we come to salvation, uh, there is an immediate response spontaneously so, of worshiping for what He has done and how He has revealed Himself to us. But as a methodology of coming before God, spontaneity and informality, friends, I don't think that you will find the Apostle Paul writing a long treatise on being spontaneous and informal. I think that to fix our issues of worship, we have to look deeper. I don't think that the God of the Bible is against ordered worship at all. At least not the God who inspired the writing of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He can't be a God that's against ordered, right worship. And it just so happens that the God who inspired Deuteronomy and Leviticus is also the God who inspired all of the New Testament. And who calls us to worship Him through the words of Christ... In spirit and in truth. What I think the psalmist is warning against here is that when we are rebuked by God, we don't do what the nation of Israel did here, and that is to hide behind a shell of formalism. 
to just recoil back into what we know instead of allowing our hearts to genuinely be dealt with through the power of the work of the Spirit of God in us. Structure, in and of itself, is a thing that can be used either for good or bad. Structure, in and of itself, is not a bad thing. Think about it. Houses are given structure in the foundation. There are some men who are given spines to stand up to the intellectual theological problems of their day. And if, if that structure wasn't there, there would certainly be a, a weakness and a problem. Now, if the only thing God had given to us was a spine and nothing else, well, that would be kind of a weird individual. So it's not that we idolize structure, but we don't want to demonize it either. God uses structures as a means for good as His Spirit moves in the people of God. And as far as hypocrisy goes, I would just say this morning, beloved, that we have to reckon with the fact that hypocrisy comes in every shape and size. What what some people claim to be lively worship today is nothing more than hypocrisy veiled in cultural formality. The culture likes the formula of Broadway and of Hollywood. What I mean when I say that is the culture likes every Sunday morning to be a show to entertain you, not a gathering where we put our hearts and minds to contemplate and to worship truly the living God. The modern church has a formality. It just doesn't look like the formalism of antiquity. Lights, theatrics, emotionalism, political rancor, you put all of that into a pair of skinny jeans, fuel it with a latte, and remove the theological spine, and you have today the formula of most modern churches. And so when people come and say, don't be formal and don't be hypocritical, sure, but beware that those who make the charge aren't guilty of the very same things themselves. See, the issue that leads to hypocrisy is not what we do on the outside, it's what we know of God on the inside. The reason why Orthodox churches, and friends, there are a lot of Baptist churches, there's a lot of Presbyterian churches, a lot of Reformed churches, whatever label you want to throw at me, there are a lot of those kinds of churches that fall into formal hypocrisy, not because of their structure necessarily, but because they have forgotten who the living God is and what it is that He has done for them. And so what do they do? They recoil into their formalism. They recoil into their tradition and they hold on to that very thing. And they believe that they are serving God, but they're not. And that happens in every sphere. So what then is the real issue here? Well, I think we can see the issue quite clearly. It's in, encapsulated in verses 9 through 13. And we do have to see uh, in verse 8 that, that, that the structure the psalmist is following in, is, is really reaffirmed in verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. God's saying, I don't have a problem with the fact that you are adhering to the structure that I've given you in the Old Testament system. That's not the issue. And here is the issue in verses 9 through 13. 
I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all of the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? Or do I drink the blood of goats? The real issue is that the people of God had forgotten one simple truth about God, and that is that He needs nothing from them. That He has in and of Himself all things that are necessary unto His glory. The common misconception of idol worshipers is a tacit belief that they must do something to keep their God happy. We've seen it a million times when our missionary friends come through and there's people that line uh, Buddhist temples. I may get this wrong. but And they have to spin little golden things in that temple. Or they have to lay some sacrifice out because in their idolatry, they genuinely believe at some level that they must meet a need that their God has to keep their God happy so that their God does not pour out His wrath upon them. Idolatry doesn't produce any rest. Idolatry ultimately produces a bunch of needy gods who are constantly begging things from us. You see, the issue of Psalm 50 is that the people had a hypocritical and prideful belief that God depended in some way upon them. Now be very careful not to think about all of this and go, well, I've never been guilty of that. Because I believe in in a myriad of ways we all fall into that trap. Uh, uh, of believing that somehow if we behave rightly or if we offer something rightly or, or whatever the case may be, that somehow we have increased God's standing in the universe. We have made His glory in the church all the more. It's not so. And so today we arrive at the doctrine of the aseity of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself, and is alone in and unto Himself all sufficient. Bookmark that in your brain. All sufficient. Not standing in need of any creatures which He hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom all things belong. We can say with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, in accordance with that Westminster standard, yes and amen. That is the living God. That is our self-sufficient or self-existent creator. That The word aseity, broken down into two parts, say literally can be translated from himself. One great theologian said, nothing is more characteristic of God than eternity and self-existence. That is... I'll say ipso extensia, or existence of and by Himself. 
The triune God does not derive any of his life from outside of himself. He is rather the source of all being and all life for all things that are outside of him. And this life exists in the Trinity. Let me walk you through John's Trinitarian thought on the aseity of God. John chapter 8, starting in verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John chapter 5, verse 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, that's the aseity, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Christ is ultimately our life, as painted in John chapter 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? Romans chapter 8, verse 10 tells us that the Spirit has life in Himself. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Ultimately, what we see in all of these passages is that all three members of the Trinity share in the aseity, the self-sufficiency of the Godhead. Now, God's aseity does not mean that He causes Himself because this would be illogical, would be nonsense, as if He could be both prior and subsequent to Himself. Rather, aseity means that God has no cause, He needs none, and He is the cause of all things. Now, some of you might be going, and you should. Why does this matter? Because so many people that you will find proclaiming a gospel, I won't lower the gospel to call what is found often on television the gospel, but a gospel is lowered to make it sound like God is needy. God is just hoping that you would come to Him. God's hoping you would try Jesus out. God is so lonely in heaven that He needs you to repent and believe so that He can have genuine relationships. If you've been around here for very long, you know that this is a drum that I beat often because it's absolute hogwash to believe that nonsense. Ultimately, God is the source and fountain of all things and He needs nothing from you and I. You see, the issue of the people of God in Psalm 50, had, the people of God in Psalm 50 had come to the point that they thought that they were able, in some sense, to be the fountainhead for genuine worship. And they fell into this formal hypocrisy. Think about what Christ says about his aseity. And, and, and Jesus doesn't give us Latin terms. For his self-existence, he says it this way, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Everything is contained in his ruling over all of creation. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 and 13, Behold, I am coming soon. And listen to these words that really... I think ring true with the first six verses of Psalm 50. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me 
to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. No creature of the dirt can add anything to a holy God. And that's a very good thing. Some people come to church, they just say I was a creature of the dirt? I did, and you are. It's a good thing to know that true worship is not dependent upon us because we stop seeing our worship in this place as something we do and rather we see it as something that God is doing miraculously through the working of His Spirit in us in this place because of what Christ has done for us. We don't see the offerings as, as what God needs, but we see that God has given us everything that we own and so we gladly lay a portion of it at His feet. Job chapter 22, in contemplating if we can ever add anything to God. Verses 2 and 3, Job 22. Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to Him if you make your ways blameless. You see, the reality is, friends, our obedience does not add to God anything. Our rebellion does not rob Him of His glory. Now, it can rob us of joy. It can rob us of our assurance in some sense. But it does not obfuscate His glory one iota. Going on in Job chapter 35, if you have sinned, What do you accomplish against Him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to Him? If you are righteous, what do you give to Him? Or what does He receive from your hand? And the answer is, there's nothing that we bring to the self-sufficient God that changes Him in any way or His decrees of redemption. John Frame rightly says, Biblical worship, unlike many pagan religions and forms of worship, is not intended to meet the needs of God. William Perkins, a notable notable Puritan divine, said, He is wholly complete, that is God, within Himself. Isn't that a glorious thing? That we are invited to worship a God that needs nothing from us. That in our greatest effort, we can't do anything to add to the glory and the majesty of God. So we dare not come in our high-minded attitudes acting as though we did anything in our worship of God. Beloved, our worship is done in the strength that He provides under the words that He has given through His apostles and prophets by the force of His free grace with the faith that He supplies by His Spirit beneath the precious blood that flowed freely for the atonement of our sin. And He does all of this To fuel worship for His glory alone. Allow that to change the way you see Sunday morning. This isn't something that I come to do. It's something that I come to experience as God is at work among us. Do you not remember what Paul told to the early church? That if you worship in spirit and in truth, this is Jay's translation, 
truncating John chapter 4 into what Paul said. If you worship in spirit and in truth, people will come in and they will fall down on their face because they will know that God is at work among you. That defines worship. That our worship isn't whether we have a liturgy or not. It's not the elements of our worship. Our worship is something that the Spirit of God alone does in the hearts and minds of His people. You know what that means? It means that what passes for worship in most churches today is categorically not worship. Just being entertained. Being amused, having your emotions and your will stirred by compelling speech is not worship. Worship is something that only God can do in the hearts and minds of those that He has redeemed for His glory. Now think about all of that in light of what one author, Jared Wilson, recently penned an article, and I'm not going to give you all ten things, but he penned an article saying, here are ten things I wish that worship leaders would stop saying. Are you ready to have fun this morning? How's everyone feeling? Come on, you can do better than that. When worship, this, this points directly at the seat of God, when we think of worship as something that we do by stirring up our volume, and somehow that makes the experience of worship better, we've missed the boat. Come on, you can do better than that. Lord, we invite you to be here as though he needed an invitation. Or this cute little phrase, man, God showed up today. Did he not yesterday? Or, here's one, let's give God some applause. Yea, God, we have lost reverent joy in the church today. And we've not lost it overnight. Bit by bit by bit by bit, we have lost what it means to worship in spirit and in truth, holy God. You see, we think that we bring energy and applause before the throne and it doesn't ultimately doesn't diminish the glory of God. It just shows that we have forgotten who He is. We learned last week that God is spirit. That is, He is immaterial, invisible, intelligent, and He is full of life. And so Jesus in John chapter 4, speaking to the woman at the well, it says this, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have answered, you wouldn't, no, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living water unto eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come 
come here to draw water. What Jesus is communicating here is that everything that brings spiritual vitality into the life of an individual flows from the living God. And from that conversation of His sufficiency to provide all things, you know where, he, where the conversation immediately goes? How do we then worship? The, the first question of right worship is where ultimately is the fountain of true worship. And it is not in us and our affections or our opinions. It is in the work of the living God. David, I think, made a wonderful declaration of the aseity of God right after, listen, David did not have a consultant for the building program at his church when they were building the temple. He he didn't have to wait on some arm twisting to get people to give, but rather the people willingly, I believe as the Spirit of God moved them along, gave copious amounts of gold and silver and precious material for the building of the temple. But do you know what David didn't do after the giving of all of those precious things for the glory of God? He did not applaud the giver. Rather, he turned to glorify God in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 verse 10 through 13 therefore david blessed the lord in the presence of all the assembly and david said blessed are you o lord the god of israel our father forever and ever yours o lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours yours is the kingdom o lord and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. When real worship is stirred in the hearts of the people, it is not due to the giver or the preacher or the theologian or the leaders, but it is due to the God who is the fountain of all spiritual blessing. Matthew Henry rightly commented, He is the fountain and the center of everything that is bright and blessed. He is the greatness. His greatness is immense and incomprehensible. And all others are little, are nothing in comparison with Him. His is the power. And it is almighty and irrepressible. Power belongs to Him. And all the power of all the creatures is derived from Him and depends upon Him. Sadly, friends, we live in a time when most men are not trained to see the sufficiency of God in all things. Many pastors today are nothing more than humanist witch doctors pandering to men trivial gods that are molded to the capricious whims of the depraved human heart. But our God, beloved, is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases, even stirring our affections and our worship for His glory. Do you remember what was, this is off the cuff, but do you remember what King Jehoshaphat said when all of the enemies came against the children of God? There was bad news that came. The people of God are crumbling. And if this was in our day and you put some megachurch idiot pastor in charge of it, the, the, the pastor would say, man, we need, to, we, need to, we need to pump up the gas. Let's get the energy going. Let's, I mean, come on, people. We've got to get the worship stirred up. We've got to send out some emails. We've got to come up with a sermon series. All of those things. King Jehoshaphat didn't say that. 
when all of the bad news and the, the, the fumbling of God's people uh, seemed imminent, they gathered together in the temple and His words were, we don't know what to do. And then He immediately said, but our eyes are upon you. That is the solution to genuine biblical worship that our gaze and focus isn't a liturgical structure. It's not the elements necessarily. It is that our gaze is fixed not upon the methodologies, but upon the Maker of heaven and earth. I believe that that's exactly what Paul believed because it's what he declared. See if you can catch the aseity of God in Roman, excuse me, in Acts chapter 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, your idols, boys, I found also an idol with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by men, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek Him and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and breathe and have our being. As I read that, that, that is actually a colloquial poetic phrase that Paul imports into his writing. Paul was a reader. Um, and, and, and as he says, in God we live and we move and we have our being. I, I just wonder if we had Paul here today and asked him, in Him we live and breathe and have our being. Is our worship included in that statement? I think he would say yes and amen. It is in Him that we live and breathe and worship rightly. It is only in Christ that we can truly worship. What a joy it is to know that God supplies that energy. So what happens then when we become aware of the self-sufficiency of God? Some people will make this argument. If you don't convince people that they need to do something so that God is, is ultimately better off, then people will stop coming to church. They'll stop giving. I had a professor in college one time who told me, he said, man, I really wish that we were Jehovah's Witnesses. What? Because then we could tell people that they, we believe that grace alone. But ultimately, they get to tell people that if you don't show up to church when it's really snowy outside, you're imperiling your ability to get to heaven. And I just like a good crowd when it snows heavy. That works out better in Missouri. It doesn't snow often enough here. But anyway, friends, all of that's a lie. Because when we realize the self-sufficiency of God, worship doesn't become just non-existent. It stirs our affections. You know what also doesn't happen when we realize that God is self-sufficient? We don't depend on informality and spontaneity. We depend upon the living God. And we depend upon what He has fixed in His Word.
Think about it. Think about how often in a myriad of ways you hear in the culture that if we're going to worship rightly, it just needs to be fun and lights and shows and all of that. And we don't need to be so serious about the word of God. I don't think Paul would agree with that. Think of the words that he wrote in Ephesians chapter 4. He who descended is the one who has ascended above all. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love when we understand the sufficiency of God I believe that the natural outworking is twofold one reverence and two obedience we no longer when we come to a God who is sufficient in himself. We no longer depend on the emotional gymnastics of a preacher. We no longer beg to have our will stirred by the best intentions of a religionist. We no longer come to God doing something big for him. Think about it. That narrative that you know well from your Sunday school days, Jesus having taken his disciples to the desert to rest after a long, wearisome season of ministering. And they find the sad news, they hear the sad news that John the Baptist has been martyred by Herod. And yet there continued to be many people that followed and in the midst of all of this fatigue and sorrow and the overwhelming need, did they look to themselves as all of the people followed? Did they say, man, we've got to come up with a strategy to feed these people? No, rather they come to Jesus realizing He is sufficient. And Christ takes the five loaves and the fish and He supernaturally multiplies them to feed thousands. And an abundance is left over This event ultimately teaches us, in the words of James Edwards, that God God wills to fill His creatures with Himself, to meet their needs with His surplus, to expand their smallness by His greatness, and to transform mundane life into the abundant life. Beloved, all that we are and all that we do are eclipsed by the weight of glory and the sufficiency of God. And when that is the case, we come in reverent humility, not seeking to do something for God, but simply coming with gratitude for all that He has done. And we look to those teachers who He has gifted to the church throughout history, and we seek to obey all that He has commanded by way of the proclamation of His Word. And that is genuine worship. You see, again, God didn't chastise Formalism. He didn't chastise giving in verse 8. I'm asked all the time uh, in various ways what I believe about tithing in the New Testament. 
And I'm asked that question because of this. There have been a lot of bad teachers who want to manipulate and make merchandise of a congregation. And so they manipulate money out of people. People are harmed by that. Then they come to a right understanding of the gospel. And the wearisomeness and penalty of bad teaching has still really, I think, permeated much of their thinking and life. And so when it comes to making offers and uh, uh, offerings, rather, uh, what do you think, Jay? Should we just forget about that altogether? Well, friends, I would just tell you this. I won't let foolish, nonsensical preaching ruin any joy of giving to a God who has given me all things. You see, the reality is the giving here wasn't the problem. But so often our human hearts, we get exhausted and we think either the, the, the structure of the worship or the giving or whatever it is, the thing is the problem. The thing is never the problem. The heart is always the problem. And what did the, the giving teach those that we find here in Psalm 50? It taught them two things. It taught them one, that everything they have comes from a self-sufficient God. He owns it all. It all comes from Him. And so, it, it teaches them about the self-sufficiency of God. But secondly, it taught them that the only way to approach a holy God is through the blood of a sacrifice. Now listen, in the New Testament economy, God help us if we ever think that we come to God through what we allow to fall in the offering plate. That's not where our offering stands. Look at verse 23. Right worship issues out. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. And to the one who orders his way rightly, I will show it's the salvation of God. There are two things there. One, gratitude and worship, and also obedience. But do you know where the obedience and the genuine gratitude flow from? It's not from you and I. It's from the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we, as we began this morning in 1 John chapter 5, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I want us to always remember the self-sufficient God that John describes not at the end of his letter in 1 John, but at the very beginning. You'll remember these words from chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Friends, the right sacrifice that is demanded of Almighty God is the precious blood of His Son. And it was poured out on Calvary. And if you have turned from your sins and believed upon Him under the power of the Spirit of Almighty God, you have all of the obedience you need in the fulfillment of the work of Christ. So what can we ever add to that? What can we ever add 
to what Christ has done to us, done for us. And what could, would we then ever withhold out of the joy that has been completed in this reality? You see, often when we get into forms of worship or whether we're tithing in our theological position or not, is that we get bogged down in some theological argument when what we really need to do is be mesmerized again that we can add positively nothing to God. But that doesn't mean that we do nothing. It means that we begin to live lives where we pour out everything for His glory. Little children, keep yourself from idols, for they are not sufficient for the judgment that is coming. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into this time and I'm reminded of the words that we sang to you this morning. Is he worthy? Is he whole? Is there anyone who's able to break the seal and open the scroll? And we know that the answer is yes and amen in Christ. That there's nothing that we can add to the sufficiency of the atonement and the person of Christ. Father, let us meditate in that over this week. Help us to remember that when there's something in us that is longing to add to Your glorious works of redemption, that we would just still ourselves in Your presence and give You thanks and live lives obedient to the imperatives of Your Word, knowing that ultimately our salvation is not completed by us, but by Christ alone. Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know You, that has never turned from their sin and placed their faith in Christ, Father, we know that that's a reality because they've never seen Christ for who, they, who He is. And so we ask that You would do what only You can do and take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that they may see Christ in all of His beauty, in all of His glory, shining forth from the pages of Your Word. And might You redeem them through the regenerating work of Your Spirit. Might they repent and believe today. Father, this morning we lift before You the Kendricks who are not able to be here with us today because they've, they're sick. We thank You for um, the, those who have led worship today. Um, you supply all of those things. So we pray, Father, that we would continue to glorify You in our time of worship. We pray, Father, that You would strengthen uh, our friends and give them healing and wellness in the days ahead. Father, for James Curtis as he gets ready to have surgery, uh, we just pray for his little body that You would give doctors wisdom. And, um, Father, that they would uh, complete the operation in a way that he would heal quickly and that there would be little pain. And Father, we'll give you glory for all of those things, knowing that you are the, the source and fountain of all good things. Might we be people who take your sufficiency to heart. In Christ's name, amen. Stand if you can, and let's sing praises to our Lord, first Lord Jesus.